Well, good morning and welcome to week number two of our series, Finding Financial Freedom. Weren't our kids great? Yes. I have uh, appreciated uh, all three of our services, them serving, and it's just been great to have them participate in this way. Uh, Before we jump into our message today, I want to encourage you to remember a few things. The first is this, baptism is today, 3 o'clock. Some of you have already made a commitment to be there, to be baptized, and we want you to know if you haven't done that yet, uh, there's still opening. Uh, I've checked, and we're not going to run out of water, and so there's room for you to come and be part of that. If you've professed your faith in Jesus Christ, uh, we would love to have you take part. You can talk to me about it. Uh, you can fill out your Connect card and say, I want to get baptized today. There's directions uh, in the program on where the baptism is. So we hope you'll be part of that. Everyone's invited to come and witness and support those who are taking that step as well. Also want to remind you that this Tuesday, our next Next Gen Vision Gathering is happening. And this is a, a meeting for those who have become part of the Southwinds family sometime in the last year. Uh, we began a season, a three-year season uh, called Next Gen, our Next Gen Spiritual Initiative last spring. And we want to share with you where God is taking us, what God is doing in our midst. It's going to take a little bit over an hour. We're going to feed you. And we're going to provide you child care if that's uh, helpful for you. And then we're going to share the vision God has given us, where we're heading as a church. And you'll have opportunities to ask questions that I will do my best to answer. So we, we encourage you to come. If you'd like to, you just sign up on your Connect card and we will get every bit of information that you need to you. The third thing I want to mention to all of our our women who are here today is we have a women's conference that's coming in just three weeks called Teach Us to Want, Learning the Language of Holy Desire. Uh, We are so privileged here at Southwinds to have uh, as our guest uh, Jen Pollock-Michelle, who is an award-winning author, internationally uh, known speaker. She's coming to us all the way from Toronto, Canada. Uh, we had a great response last week from those of you who, who said, yeah, I'm coming, and you got signed up. Uh, we still have time to sign up. There's still lots of room uh, for those of you who would like to be part of it as well, and you can do that online today. Uh, men, I want to let you know, Mother's Day is just two weeks away. You're welcome, because <laughs> some of you had forgotten that, and this may be a nice uh, Mother's Day gift to give uh, to your wife, if, if she would like that, uh, we'd encourage you to take advantage of that. If, uh, if you haven't noticed already, there is an insert in your program that has all of the information about the, the conference and about how to sign up. You can use this for yourself. You could also use it to invite someone uh, to come just to share this with them. We hope that you will jump in and be part of that. Well, we are now going to jump in and start our message for this morning, and it's a very practical teaching from God's Word Uh, We're going to be talking today about what to do with what God gives us. And the message is called Three Principles and a Plan. Now, I know you are in church, but I want you to imagine, I'm giving you permission to imagine that you have won the lottery. Anybody want to go down that road? Does that sound like something fun to think about today? And, uh, you know, I know you don't believe in gambling, so in this scenario, you didn't actually buy a ticket. You just found one in the parking lot at work, and you picked it up because what are you going to do? And the Powerball jackpot is currently at $130 million. I thought I'd share that with you because I knew you didn't know. And I checked it out. If you were to win the lottery and you won that jackpot, you would take home after taxes uh, a little over $59 million. 
Now, think about that scenario. You can pay off every bill. You would have no mortgage, right? You, you can pay for your kids' college education. You can fully fund your retirement. You can be generous and you can meet needs like your next-gen commitment. You, you could actually meet my next-gen commitment. You could actually meet everybody's next-gen commitment. You, you could just do whatever you, you want. In fact, if, if you win a jackpot where you take home $59 million, you could even afford to pay for your daughter's wedding. Now, that kind of freedom financially only happens if you win the lottery, right? Well, the answer is wrong. Because financial freedom is actually God's plan for your life if you are his child. If you follow God's plan, you can know financial freedom. And it doesn't involve winning the Powerball. God wants us to know financial freedom in our lives. God wants us to live lives that are free of stress and anxiety about money. God wants us to be out from under the the bondage and the weight of debt. He wants us to have the safety net of savings for the future. He wants us to have the ability to be generous. Now, last week we started our series by learning from Jesus that finding financial freedom is a heart matter. That's where it starts. It's all about who our master is. We, we, we saw that it's about who we love and who we serve. We asked those questions. Will we love and serve our stuff? Or will we love and serve Jesus? And I just want to remind all of us that if we don't get this right, then none of what the Bible teaches will, will ultimately transform us. In other words, unless our hearts are in the right place, we're never going to be able to know and find financial freedom. And so if you weren't here maybe and you didn't hear that message, I just encourage you to check it out. You can watch, you can listen online or on our podcast. Now, with that background, today we're going to be starting down the road very, very practically toward financial freedom. And I want this morning to do this by looking at three principles that God gives us in his word, following that by looking at an overarching financial plan that are based on those principles. And these principles really are taught in many, many places in the Bible, but we find all three of them packaged in a single story that Jesus told in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 25. And so I want to invite you to turn there. We're going to read verses 14 through 27. Matthew 25, verses 14 through 27. Here's what Jesus says. Again, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, You entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. 
You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Now this story shows us three foundational principles that God wants all of us to know about money. And these are three principles that will guide us as we journey toward the kind of freedom that God's word describes for us, the kind of freedom that addresses debt and, and savings, that, that speaks about investments and retirement, that talks about spending and giving. Here's the first principle. Very simple, very straightforward. God owns everything. God owns everything. Now, most people who believe in a God probably wouldn't have a problem with this, not if they would stop and think about it, because if there is a God, and if God created everything, then it just stands to reason that everything that has been given to us is actually His. Our health, our intelligence, our abilities, everything comes from God. Everything we have is a gift from God. Listen to some examples of how the Bible speaks about this. Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 and 18 says, You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Even your abilities, even your intelligence, even your physical strength, even your cleverness and your good decisions, those things that have contributed to success in your life, it all comes from God. It all belongs to God. He's the owner. He made it all, so it's all His. And we find this truth all through the Bible. Let me just give you several examples. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Leviticus 25, 23 says, The land is mine. This is God speaking. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 8, it says, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. And then Psalm 50, verse 10 says, For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. He just goes on and on and on. And so if you believe that there is a God, then really believing that he's the owner of everything shouldn't be that big of a deal. But the difficulty comes when you kind of begin to think it through and you start pulling out the implications of God's ownership. Because that's when it gets real. Let me mention a few for you. For example, if God owns it all, then as the owner, he has all the rights to what he owns. And since I only have what he's allowed me to have, then I just have responsibilities. God, he has rights. I have responsibilities. God's the owner. I'm the manager. Second implication, if God owns everything then every spending decision is a spiritual decision. I wonder if that's a new thought for you. 
whether it's buying a car, taking a vacation, paying your taxes, buying groceries, whatever, every spending decision is a spiritual decision. You might say, well, why would that be the case? Well, the answer is this, because I am always only managing the resources that God has given me to manage. And if that's true, then he cannot rightfully be shut out of any transaction. He cannot be excluded from any purchase or any investment. Why? Because it's ultimately his stuff. See, a lot of us on our journey towards trying to honor God, we'll find ourselves asking this question, God, what do you want me to do with my money? And that's a better question than not asking at all. But it's not exactly the right question. You know what the right question is? The right question is, God, what do you want me to do with your money? Your money. It's his money, always, his resources, always, that I'm using. Here's the third implication of God's ownership. The amount is not important. In other words, God is not so much concerned with the amount you are managing as he is with the management process itself. Just think back in that story that Jesus told. Did anyone notice that that the master gives the very same affirmation? It's actually word for word for word to the servant who took five talents and turned them into five more, as he did to the servant with two who turned those into two more. See, the question wasn't the amount at all. It was their faithfulness. And again, for you and me, how much money we make isn't the issue. The real key is whether or not we are following God's plan for financial freedom. Now, I want you to see this with this first principle. Finding financial freedom always requires that we live in reality. And if you make your way to see a financial counselor of any kind, one of the things they're going to tell you right up front is, We need to get it all out in front of us because we need to understand reality. And I am telling you, and the Bible is telling you, the ultimate reality about your finances is right here. God owns everything. And as long as you don't accept that reality, then you're not living in reality. You're living in a kind of unreality, and you're never going to find true freedom. Second, major biblical principle for money management flows right out of the first God holds us accountable for how we use money. Verse 19, Jesus says, After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. So if everything is his, and if we are the managers of what he's allowed us to have, then ultimately we are accountable to him for how we manage it. Now, in Jesus' story, just think about it. There was a time when the people with responsibility stood before the person with rights. And they gave an accounting of their management. This is going to be true for us. God will hold us accountable for the way we live. And this is every part of how we live. This includes the use of our money, which is actually his money. Now, I I think that many of us have never really stopped to think about that, never really contemplated that as we make our life's decisions. But I'm telling you, if you will begin to think in these terms, you will be better off today and you'll be far better off in eternity. Now, I'm going to kind of pause right here, do a little timeout on this one, because I don't want anyone to go in directions that I don't intend. This principle should not create undue anxiety in us. This doesn't mean that you should fret and worry and labor over every tiny little spending decision. You don't need to spend a whole lot of time praying over whether or not you buy a pack of gum. 
okay? And, and here's how I want you to, to think about this. This may take a while for some of us to learn how to walk in this reality that God owns everything and I'm accountable to him. And the reason it'll take us a while to figure it out is because we have been using money on our own for so long. But in the end, you need to remember, this is not different than any other area of life. For example, you learn from God through his word how to treat people, right? How to love other people, how to serve other people. And sometimes in your treatment of other people, you fail and you sin. Is that correct? Now, we may need to talk about honesty next. Um, Let me just ask that again. Is that correct? Yeah, we, we fail and we sin. So what do we do when we fail and sin? Well, we repent. We confess our sin to God, and God does what he promises to do. He always forgives us, and we move on. Sometimes in our lives, as we are learning from God how to speak or how to think, sometimes we say the wrong things. Sometimes we think the wrong things. Sometimes we fail in sin. Is that right? Do you ever do that? Go ahead and let us know. Yeah, we do that, right? So what do we do? Well, we repent. We confess it to God. We receive his forgiveness. What I am telling you is that exactly the same way as we are learning from God how to use his money. Sometimes as you use God's money, even as you're trying to do what's best, sometimes you will fail. Sometimes you will sin. So what do you do? Well, you remember that you have a loving, good father who is so gracious to you, who is so full of love for you. He is so patient. He is so merciful. Amen? Amen. And when you fail and when you sin with your money, what do you do? You just repent. You just confess You just receive God's forgiveness and and you move on. Do you get where I'm headed with this? But it is so crucial that we begin to live into this reality, not only that God owns everything, but we actually are accountable to him for how we use not our money, but his money. Now, this brings us to the third biblical principle. The way we use money is a life test. Maybe you notice in verses 21 and 23, Uh, that the master commended those two servants who passed the test, as I said a moment ago, with the exact same words. But then in verses 26 and 27, he addresses the third servant. This servant failed the test. This servant knew what the master wanted him to do, and he didn't do it. Now, let me just lay this out as clearly as I can. This is reminding us what the Bible teaches, and that is that this life that we live is like one big audition for the life to come. You're going to live 80 years on this side. You're going to live forever on the other side of death, right? And so what we do in this world, God has designed it to be us preparing ourselves. It's a test for what's going to come in eternity. When it comes to our time, when it comes to our talents, when it comes to our resources, our money, we have all been given a little bit for a short time. And it is not ours. It's all a gift from God given to us to see how we will manage it. And this story tells us if we manage it well, God will entrust us with more. And not just in this life, but also in the life to come. But that really is kind of how we mess this up, right? And instead of seeing that what we've been given is a life test, we have this tendency to kind of kick God out and do this on our own. We see money as life itself. And that is why getting 
understanding that money is not life, but a life test, that really does lie at the heart of finding financial freedom. Now, you just have to realize, as you are thinking about these principles, that everything, and I mean everything, goes back in the box. Do you know what I'm talking about? I get that phrase from John Ortberg, who told a story one time as an illustration, and then it became the title of a book that he wrote. And and the book was entitled, It All Goes Back in the Box. And he talked about uh, using this picture of playing board games. How many of you love to play board games? How many of you hate to play board games? I'm with you right there. I see those hands. I don't really like board games, but it's a really great illustration. And it kind of works like this. Let's just think about Monopoly. We all know about Monopoly. You know, when you play Monopoly, you get all the stuff out of the box, all the houses, all the hotels, boardwalk, park place, railroads, utilities, all the thousands of dollars. Don't you love to hold all those thousands of dollars in your hand? And so you play the game, but when you get done, it all goes back in the box. And it's not bad to play the game. It's not bad to be good at the game. The danger is that you forget what really matters. The danger is that you make the game everything. You you forget that in the end, it's over. It all goes back in the box. And don't forget this. It is not even your box. It's God's box. And so what matters most isn't whether you beat everybody else, you get all the right properties. It's whether you play by the right rules. You make the right decisions. Because the game always ends. And your possessions and your resume and your body and your pleasures and your security and your titles and positions and your physical attractiveness and your health and and other people's opinions of you. And of course, money. It all goes back in the box. There are actually only two things that don't go back in the box. You know what those are? You and how you lived. You and the test. And so the question becomes, how do you pass the test? And I'm talking here, I mean, from real life, actual, in reality, money management perspective. And the answer simply is you need to follow God's plan. Now that brings us to the overarching plan we're going to talk about today, a plan that honors the three principles we've discussed And before I get to the plan, I want to just kind of tell you this on the front end. For some of you, this will be very familiar. You you will have heard this before. For some of you, it'll be the first time you've ever heard it, new information. But for many, many of us, whether you've heard it before or not, it's going to be a good reminder. And I want to just say this. I, I don't think many of you are going to like this plan. Many of you are going to want to shut down, get defensive, and I know that ahead of time, but you need to know my choice as I stand before you as your pastor is, is to maybe never teach on stuff like this and keep everyone happy, but not financially free. Or I can stand before God with my teaching and trust that God will use that to speak to you. I can kind of serve it up to you, and then it's really up to you to do with it what you choose. So I just want to say ahead of time, if you don't think that what I'm saying is true or fair, that's fine. But maybe just give me the courtesy of listening and receiving as I kind of serve it up. And then you you decide what you will do with it in response. Let me jump in. The plan is called the 10-10-80 plan. This is a plan that takes the Bible's teaching on financial freedom and it kind of organizes it, maybe in the simplest way possible. It's not an original plan with me. I certainly cannot claim 
to have perfectly practiced this uh, all my life. It's called the 10-10-80 plan because through this you take whatever you make and manage, whatever God gives you, and you put 10% in one area, 10% in another area, and then 80% in a third. So we're going to talk about that. First part of the plan is called the first 10. The first 10. This plan includes you starting off by taking the first 10% of everything you earn and then you return it to God and his work through the local church of which you are a part. And you do this because God has asked you to. You do this because God's the owner, which means he has the right to ask you to do that. This is taught in many, many places throughout the Bible. It's very clear. I'm going to give you just one example from the last book in the Old Testament in the, the, the words of the prophet Malachi. And in Malachi 3, 7 through 12, Malachi is recording what's kind of a dialogue between God and his people. See if you can follow along. God speaks first. It says, Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty, and then the people. But you ask, how are we to return? And God, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me, now the people. But you ask, how do we rob you? God answers, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now, this was written several hundred years before the time of Christ and it could be that some of that language lost you. So let me give you a quick definition of five words, tithe, offering, storehouse, curse, and blessing. This word tithe literally means 10%. It literally just means a tenth. And it was a term that was used for the practice that was practiced by God's people, of taking 10% of everything you earn uh, and giving it back to God. A tithe, as you can see in this passage, was always to be from your first fruits, meaning it was the first thing you did with your money. It was not the last, uh, you know, with just what was left over. And it was to be based on all your income. That's the idea behind bringing the whole tithe. Uh, Apparently, back in this day, part of the problem was that some people were kind of playing around with this, kind of making it a game, maybe like beating the IRS. I don't know why anybody would do anything like that. It's hard for us to imagine people trying to kind of cut corners, right? I mean, but people have actually done this in the past, if you can think of it this way. And you can imagine some of these people saying things like, okay, well, is this tithing on the net or the gross? Maybe they ask, does it include stock or is it just payroll? And when I sell the stock, is it on the initial value of the stock or is it on how much it's appreciated? And maybe somebody said, well, is it on my salary only or does it include my bonus? Here's what you need to understand about questions like this. This is for God a heart issue. Where's your heart? Is your response in this addressing the reality that your very next breath, every one of those is a gift from God's hand? Are you seeking to truly honor him as God? God just kind of cuts through it all and says, bring the whole tithe on everything you've been given, 
on all that you've received. And so that was the tithe. That was the first 10%. With God as owner, this is what he asks us to do. Now, an offering was anything that you would give above and beyond a tithe. In that day, 10% was considered the bare minimum that anyone would dream of returning to God since that was the minimum he had specifically asked for. The the tithe was the floor, not, not the ceiling. And so periodically, out of gratitude, out of commitment to God, people would give an offering. It was above and beyond their 10%. This is, this is, for example, like what we've been doing with our next-gen spiritual initiative. We are giving uh, to next-gen above and beyond our regular giving. It's like what we do with our Christmas offering every year. We give to meet the needs of people. It's something we do above and beyond our, our regular giving. And then the way you would give either a tithe or an offering was to give to the storehouse. Now, in Malachi's day, the storehouse was attached to the temple. It was the place where where all the gifts and all the resources, all the funds for the temple were stored for use. In that day, the temple was the designated place for people to worship. It was the center of ministry life for God's people. We move from that day into the New Testament era, and we see that over time, the temple becomes the local church. In fact, the Apostle Paul connects the two. 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says to those people, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. And that is why throughout the New Testament, the tithes and offerings of God's people were to go to a local church where they were a part. They weren't given anywhere else. Uh, You can give your above and beyond offerings, your charity to other places, but not the tithe. And so the tithe isn't what you give to the United Way, what you give to a parachurch ministry, what you might give to a charity that's near to your heart. That goes to God's work. Now, Jesus, some people wonder, what does Jesus think about this? And, and one time Jesus was asked if tithing was still something that to, should be done. And Jesus gives this very long, very involved, very ambiguous, and very hard to understand reply to that question. Jesus says, yes, you should tithe. Because Jesus knew when people don't do this, when people keep everything God gives them, it's a very serious thing. As Malachi talks about it, as we've just read, we are told that it removes us from God's blessing. And in fact, it actually places us under what the Bible calls a curse. Now, let's be clear on this. To be under a curse in the Bible is not like being under some kind of spell or enchantment, you know, like you read about in a fairy tale. That's not what it's talking about. In the Bible, listen to this, to be under a curse from God simply means that you are living outside his blessing, outside his umbrella of protection and provision. A curse means simply you are doing this on your own. You are living without regard to what God wants for you. You're just making your own choices operating independent of his supernatural oversight and intervention. So what does blessing mean? What are we talking about here? Well, there are two extremes people can take on what the Bible is teaching here. And the first one is to kind of fall into what we might call this name it, claim it, health and wealth, prosperity approach that says, tithe, you tithe, and you too can drive a Mercedes because God will get you one. And he'll get me one if you tithe to my ministry too. That's what I'm really after. You know, it's, it's like if you give and tithe, this is the key to seven-figure incomes and 10,000-square-foot homes. And I just want to say to you, that's garbage. It's not true. Don't listen to anybody who teaches like that. 
But there's another extreme that's just as off base. And it's the idea that God does not bless at all, that there is no relationship at all between what you do financially and what God does. That's not biblical either. Because the Bible teaches without qualification that if, if you follow God into this aspect of financial management, listen to me, five words, he will bless your life. He will bless your life. You say, so what kind of blessing are we talking about? Well, four words. It's up to God. It's up to God. It could be financial. Or it could be way better than that. Can you even imagine a scenario that's way better than that? If you can't, that means your vision is too limited. God can bless you with security. God can bless you with joy. God can bless you as you give by developing your character more and more into the image of Christ. God can bless you with fulfillment. God can bless you with knowing that you're making an impact in this world, in other people's lives. There can be blessing on your relationships, on marriages and on families. There can be favor shown on an enterprise, on a career. Four words, it's up to God. But God does bless. God does bless. There is one thing we can say for sure. God's very specific in this passage about how he'll bless us. He, he, he talks about in this references to protecting crops from pests and fruit from spoiling. He, he tells us, he's making it clear that those who follow him in this area will never have to worry about their giving, taking away from their supply. In other words, they can trust God and rest assured they're not going to lose ground because of generosity. That if they give 10%, God is going to use the rest to take care of their needs, sometimes supernaturally. It's as if God is saying, listen, you trust me enough. You obey me enough to do what I say in this area of your finances. And in return, I will be involved in your life. And I'll do that in a unique way. I will bring blessing to you. Most of all, the blessing of knowing that I'm going to take care of your needs. You take care of your money in the normal ways. Uh, be clear on this. Tithing doesn't mean you can go and do whatever you want with the rest of it and then blame God for the mess. God is saying, you be faithful in all areas, beginning with tithing, and I'll take care of you. So don't binge. Don't go into debt. Don't go crazy you know, with making foolish decisions. Do your part and I will do mine. And there's so many promises related to this. Let me give you a taste. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 is one of the most important passages about generosity. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. This is really what giving is about honoring God. And let me just ask you, you think about this as you leave this place in a few minutes. Does my generosity honor God? Very important question. Now, what God teaches in this area is very clear. You guys are bright. I, I can look out and I can see the intelligence. It's just kind of radiating out from you guys. Have I ever told you 11 o'clock service is my favorite service? Don't tell the 8 or 9.30 people, okay? Just between us. You guys are bright. You're intelligent. You get what I've just said, correct? But this is so hard to practice, isn't it? And it is. A long time ago, I, I heard someone talk about this in a way 
that reminded me of something that happened in my family with my kids many, many times. I'm sure it's happened in yours as well. And it was this. When my kids were little and sometimes when they were hungry, I would take them to McDonald's, the Golden Arches, the land of happiness. And I would buy them some French fries. And, you know, you're just sitting there in one of those little booths eating the French fries. I get myself some French fries and, you know, they were distracted or whatever. I'd finish my French fries first and, you know, I just kind of wanted another one. And so I'd ask one of those children, can I have one? And, you know, Dan and I worked very hard to develop Christ-like character, <laughs> generosity of spirit, love for all people in the lives of our kids. And so out of, the, out, of the, out of the holy, sanctified character that we had put into their lives and developed in them, they would say, no! <laughs> and, and I would say, but I'm your dad. I mean, one fry. No, no, they're mine. I want them all, you know. And then sometimes I would explain reality to them. <laughs> Carefully. With feeling. I'd say, listen, you little punk. You don't understand. I paid for those fries. You didn't pay for those fries. And second, not only did I buy them, I can take them away. I don't need to ask you. I can take all of those fries, as many of those fries, whenever I want to take those fries. So you had better be glad right now. I'm only asking for one. And then third, use your head. If you treat me right, don't you understand I am the one who can get you more fries? I mean, I am McDonald's, Burger King, Carl's Jr., Jack in the Box, five guys in in and out all rolled into one. Sometimes I would tell them, you know what? You should just take your little skinny self over there to the counter and try to get some fries on your own. See how far that gets you. And I would remind them, you know what, if I go up there, not only can I come back with more, but I can say supersize. <laughs> That's happened to all of us, hasn't it? It happens to God all the time. And you know what God wants us to understand? We all have our fries all God is asking for is a small number that are returned to him out of a desire to honor him, out of a desire to be grateful, out of an acknowledgement that he actually is the one that gave them to us, that then the, these things that we give uh, back to God can be used to honor his name and to change people's lives. And then we find ourselves saying, no, no. And God says, you're not getting this, are you? I gave you those fries. I can take them away. I don't have to ask you for them. And if you would just listen to what I'm trying to tell you, you would realize that I can bless you with more fries than you could ever eat. Now, this is at the heart of what is taught in the Bible. And this is the first part of the 101080 plan. It's very simple. Everything that God gives to you, you return 10% to him. And you just do it with trust in a simple fact that no matter how much that is, no matter how much it may stretch your faith at times, you can know that you will never be able to outgive God. But you don't do it for what you'll get. You do it because you know God. You do it because you love God, because you want to honor God, because you want to pass the life test that God gives you. You know, around here at Southwinds, you've been here long enough, you know this is true. We don't do guilt or manipulation 
And God doesn't do it either. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, it says, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you ask yourself why God loves a cheerful giver, why does God want someone to give freely and cheerfully? It's because that honors him when we give freely and cheerfully. And because generosity is always the first step to financial freedom. Now, I spent the most time on this first part of the plan because we're going to deal with the second and third part of the plan in the weeks that are ahead. But I'm going to go ahead and give you the big picture now so you know where we're headed. Here's the second part. The second 10 is long-term investment. The second part of this 10-10-80 plan is to take another 10% and you invest this in some kind of long-term savings plan. In other words, with every paycheck, you pay yourself. Now, in this category, the Bible nowhere specifies any percentage like it does for giving, but most financial counselors today recommend something like 10%. And this is talking about, you know, long-term savings like a, a mutual fund or stocks or bonds or limited partnerships, an IRA, pension. It could be land or real estate sometimes. This is not uh, when you're saving for a new piece of furniture or for that flat screen 4K Ultra HD TV you had your eye on or a trip, that dream trip to Hawaii. That's something else. This is, this is about a long-term plan to get money working for you. And the Bible talks a lot about this. Listen to what it says in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. Proverbs 10, 5 says, He who gathers crops in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. Proverbs 21, 20 says, The wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. And the Bible again and again encourages us to save for the future. It's not about wealth building. It's not about materialistic gain. It is about security, providing for our needs, because without savings, without reserve, when we're living paycheck to paycheck, we are not in freedom. And honestly, I may not know your situation, but I know this is where a lot of us are. So many people in our culture today, their debt is so high, their savings is almost non-existent that they are only one difficult circumstance away from disaster. That's not financial freedom. That's bondage. And that's not, that's not what God wants for us. You say, so what's the 80% for? Well, the 80 is about day-to-day -day living. This is what you live on. You give 10% back to God. You put 10% into some kind of long-term savings or investment plan. And then you use the final 80% for actual living expenses. Now, very quickly, I want us to kind of line this out, put this 10-10-80 plan into action. And we're going to see an example of how it works so we're really clear. First thing you do is write down your total income. It starts there. We'll pick an easy round number. Put this up on the screen. We'll start with $50,000, okay? Next... You follow God's plan. You subtract what you're going to give in the 10-10-80 plan. That would be 10%, and that would be $5,000. The step after that is you take out taxes. And uh, on a salary of $50,000, all your taxes combine anywhere from 18 to 25%. So let's just say taxes will be about $10,000. After you do that, you subtract whatever debt repayment you have and Again, this just changes from person to person. So we'll pick a number and just say $5,000.
And, and then, then you got to do long-term savings, right? Again, following the plan, that would be another $5,000. And after you have subtracted all of these things, giving, taxes, debt repayment, uh, savings, now you have a figure that reflects how much you have to fund your lifestyle, in this case, $25,000. Now, if you don't like the numbers, fine, just change them. I'm just trying to give you examples to show you this plan in action. Give first, save second, and then live on the rest. That's the plan. And what we're going to do in the next few weeks is just dig into this. We're going to flesh out some of the critical specifics of, of how this works, like how you get out of debt, how you begin to build your savings, how you begin to live within your means. But this is our framework, the 10 10 plan. And, and before we leave this, before we close, I want to just point out what many of us, our natural tendency to do, what my tendency would be to do left unchecked. It's anything but this plan. In fact, it's the exact opposite of this plan. Let me just show you the typical spending plan. This plan starts with lifestyle, how you want to live. That's where you begin. You know, the house I want, the clothes I want to wear, the cars I want to drive, how often I want to eat out, how many smart TVs I have in my house, on and on and on. And then after that, we subtract the debt repayments to fund that lifestyle. And then after that, we take out taxes. And then after that, we try to save something. Usually there's not much left. And then after that, we get the giving. And in many cases, it gets overlooked almost entirely. Now look at those two columns. Can you see how they are exactly the opposite? This typical plan, which so many of us live under, is the exact opposite of God's plan. And here's what I want you to understand. Financial freedom will never come that way. Financial freedom will only come when you live God's way. You, you begin with lifestyle. All it's going to do is put you into a cycle of debt. It's going to crowd God out of the picture. It's going to leave you, in many cases, without much hope for breaking free. There's only one way out, and that is God's plan. Now, following God's plan, for some of us, is going to require a radical rethinking of how we approach money. It's going to involve our submission to God's word. It's going to involve living under God's discipline and obeying God in long-term you know, reality. But it will lead you eventually, sooner or later, to what you want and what God wants, which is financial freedom. Before we pray, I want to just say one more word. This may seem, I get this, this may seem impossible to some of us. I know that there will be, you know, in any, any one of our services, there will be people who are single moms maybe, and they're just barely scraping by, or there will be people who are out of work, or maybe some of us have been out of work, and in the wake of that, we're just trying to, claw our way back to some semblance of normality. This may seem impossible. This may seem like something you just can't see any way to implement. I want to tell you ahead of time, in the weeks ahead, we're going to get some very practical, very useful guidance from God's Word. And I think it'll change your outlook. But for right now, in response to today's message, I want to encourage you to just make a commitment to trust God and then I want to encourage you to make a commitment to do whatever you can do, to take whatever step you can take now to obey God.
Maybe you see no way to tithe, but you realize you haven't been faithful in this area. And so maybe you just need to take a step forward in that area and begin to trust God more than you're trusting him right now. Maybe you say, I have nothing to say. There's no way I can say, but you know God wants you to save. And so you just start somewhere. Maybe it's just 1%. Whatever it is, do something. Take a step of obedience, even if it seems small to you. Honor God by obeying him and then trust God to honor you and bless you in return as you seek to follow his good, good plan for you. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the Bible's specific insights on how to save, um, where to find the money to do that, how to make that happen in our lives. That's where we're headed. I hope you'll be back. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Father, this part of your word uh, we know can be very difficult for us and not hard to understand, Lord, but we find ourselves not liking it. And sometimes we, we don't see how it can work. And honestly, Lord, sometimes we just don't want it to work. So, Lord, if we are feeling resistant or defensive right now, I, I pray that you would just help us to relax. I, I pray that you would help us to rest in you that you would help us to remember how good you are. Remember that you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for us so that we could be forgiven our sins and so that we could live abundant lives and so that we could know true freedom. Lord, would you help us to remember that you don't want something from us, you want something for us. And that is blessing and freedom. And so, Lord, would you soften our hearts and humble our wills? Would you give to us the willingness to obey, even if we can't see how? Father, you are God and we are your people, and so we place ourselves in your hands knowing that you are good. We pray these things all now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen.